Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to In the Queue. I am your co-host, Andrew. And this was a film that I have been aware of for a very long time and was always on my, oh, I need to see that because this is a seminal work kind of uh, list. And I'd never seen it until now. So thank you to our guest, Liz, for bringing this film to me and forcing me to watch it for this uh, podcast because I really enjoyed it. Indeed. Uh, this is Phil, your other co-host. And uh, to kind of piggyback off of what you said, Andrew, I remember when this movie came out when I was 10 oh, yeah, years yeah. old. And uh, I knew nothing of the world of this film at the time. Uh, I still don't really know much more other than what I learned from watching it for this <laughs> podcast. Wait, did you see it when you were 10 years old? No, no, but I remember reading about it in the Washington Post, and it was getting a lot of acclaim sure. at the time. Sure, and uh, it seemed like an interesting subject, but uh, I, I was delighted to actually finally see it, and and I'm also delighted to see that it has such a great rating on IMDb too. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, the film that we're talking about is Paris is Burning. Uh, this is a, uh, as I said before, a seminal documentary film. Um, that was directed by Jenny Livingston. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Our guest today is Liz, uh, returning to the podcast. Liz, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Uh, there hey. it is. There it is. Uh, Liz has joined us for the conversation, uh, suggested this film, that we talk about it on the podcast. So we're going to do that in just one second. But first, I want to tell you how you can find us on the web. You can go to our website at www.in-the-q, that's the letter q.com. Uh, we post all of our episodes there. You can find them. And you can listen to them. Uh, you can also do the same thing on our Facebook page by going to Facebook and searching for In the Q, Q U E U E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And there you can leave comments, suggest films like Liz has done today. Uh, you can also engage us in conversation. You can also like our page and we'll fill your feed with a bunch of interesting tidbits and supplemental materials about the films that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also engage us on Twitter by searching for at ITQ podcast. That's our Twitter handle or go to any of your podcast aggregating apps like iTunes or overcast and search for in the queue, Q U E U E film conversations with Andrew and Phil. And you can subscribe to the podcast and get every single episode delivered straight to you. So that's the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, without any further ado, I'm going to play you a short clip from the film. Paris is burning the way the rich people lived and I'd feel it more you know it would slap me in the face I'd say I'd have to have that because I never felt comfortable being poor I just don't or even middle class doesn't suit me seeing the riches seeing the way people on dynasty lived these huge houses and I would think these people have 42 rooms in their house oh my god what what kind of a house is that and we've got three so why is it that they can have it and I didn't? I always felt cheated. I always felt cheated out of things like that. You have space to do all that you intend to. Now the categories are Butch Queen, one through 17, and for the girls, 18 through 30. As far as all of y'all not walking, please realize that we all, at one time or another, have lusted to walk a ballroom floor. So give the patrons and the contestants, you know, a round of applause for nerve. Because with your vicious motherfuckers, it do take nerves. Believe me, we're not going to be shady, just fierce. Those balls are more or less like our fantasy of being a superstar. You know, like the Oscars or whatever. Or being on a runway as a model. You know, a lot of those kids that are in the balls, they don't have two of nothing. Some of them don't even eat. They come to balls starving, and they sleep in under 21, or they sleep on the pier, or wherever. They don't have a home to go to, but they'll make, they'll go out and they'll steal something and get dressed up and come to a ball for that one night and live the fantasy. There it is. Uh, a short clip from the film. Um, <clears throat> if you had not gathered, uh, as I said before, the film is a documentary, and it is it centers on the balls that happened in New York city in the seventies and the eighties. Um, this centers on balls that are happening in the eighties specifically, um, which were gatherings of, uh, folks who were dressing in drag of one form or another and, uh, basically competing 
uh, in a variety of categories with one another uh, to, uh, I don't know if you, maybe competing isn't the right Oh, no, it's phrase. absolutely a competition. It is, but it, uh, it, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, there were those massive trophies that they were giving out. Um, but there are so many categories this, and so many subcategories, and this actually becomes like a, a, a thread within the film that uh, at least one of the uh, interviewees uh, sort of talks about. But uh, there's a I, lot of different the movie, though. Let me just jump in here because yeah, yeah. I'm excited. The thing is, <clears throat> like, yes, it is. This, these balls are competitions, but the, this 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 is not the type of documentary like some others where you're rooting for certain people to triumph over others. Yeah, it's, it's not about, like that spelling bee documentary or whatever. <laughs> Spellbound yeah. or hands on a hard body or you know, yeah, yeah. others. Like the, the documentary Pumping is iron. not trying to like get you pumped up as to see who is going to emerge victorious. No, it's more about the different personalities of, of all these people who are participating. And I would say that that's the great triumph of the film is that it's really about the individual personalities. So the film is sort of subdivided into various different segments uh, that focus on the personalities that are there at these balls, sort of uh, as ever-present uh, personalities at this particular point in time. So that just gives you kind of a rough overview of it. Liz, please let us know why you picked this film to talk about and uh, and give us a little uh, background on, on why you brought it to In the Queue. So um, I have seen this movie at least a million times, approximate number. Um <laughs> I feel like I say that every time we talk, but for real this time. <laughs> um, and I was I was in a very small conservative town in uh, North Carolina when this came out, so I definitely didn't hear about it at all. In <laughs> fact, um, I did have CNC Music Factory's Gonna Make You Sweat album, and I would dance to that last track in which they sample We're Not Gonna Be Shady, Just Fierce, and I uh-huh. didn't know what the source was until I saw this movie I don't know, 15 years later. Um, yeah. But yeah. it's drag culture specifically has become so into the mainstream in the last 10 years, predominantly <clears throat> because of RuPaul's Drag Race. Of course. Um, but it's so important to understand where half of RuPaul's catchphrases come from this movie, yeah. including <laughs> her first hit, Supermodel, where she says, Supermodel of the World. That's an Octavia St. Laurent. Um, uh, quote from this movie that mm-hmm. RuPaul repurposed into her first hit, making her a household name in 1992 or three. Yeah. Um, but is it I also, think, is it fair to say though that Octavia did not originate the phrase either? Of course she didn't. <laughs> and this is, that's kind of, I think these days with all the conversation we're having about uh, sexuality versus gender and then gender performance, it's such an important film to watch to yeah. understand that this isn't new. These are not new concepts. These are not new things people are saying. Um, I was watching the Joan Rivers interview that she does with this cast, and she did something revolutionary for the time where she asked Dorian Corey what her gender preference was in the interview. And for 1991, when that interview was taking place, that was unheard of. But these days, it's becoming more socially acceptable. So I yeah. think... I think this movie is something that everybody should watch um, at some point or the other, just as like a basic rudimentary history lesson for mm. a lot of the things that we're seeing finally move into uh, social consciousness and the political forum of the teens or whatever we're calling this decade. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's where I'm coming from. And also it's an awesome movie and you should have seen it. Uh yeah, I will. I will double down on that. I think it, it's an extraordinary film, um, and I, I guess I didn't realize quite how extraordinary. I knew that it was a very important film in drag culture, um, in gay culture. I knew that it was. It's kind of uh, referenced often as kind of a, a milestone flick um, in terms of gay cinema, and I had always wanted to see it, but I didn't realize, for instance, audience that it is streaming on netflix right now you can watch it yeah if you have a netflix subscription boom yeah it's gorgeous it's really well the transfer looks great um it's really uh it's really an impressive film that uh uh sort of is in in the tradition i would say of kind of the the mazels or or frederick wiseman kind of 
films, the kind of very observational films that don't, uh, they don't come at you with a, a, a sort of op-ed opinion about something, right? They just Mm -hmm. allow their subjects to speak for, speak for themselves. It's, it's a, it's an extraordinary way of, of making documentary film. And I think one of the most effective because it doesn't editorialize in any way. And, Mm -hmm. And so you allow the subjects of the films to really reveal the, their souls and their lives uh, on their own terms, and it's mm-hmm. it's an extraordinary way to 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 watch a film unfold, and especially as you say, Liz, for for something that I think people have a tendency to think is only a mo- like a very modern or recent kind of uh, issue to take up, um, especially for a film that was made right smack dab in the middle of the AIDS crisis, tackling this particular issue with the amount of, uh, sort of, I guess, I don't, nonchalance doesn't sound right. (laughs) They Uh, had, the, the filmmaker had great access is what I walk away with. Yeah. Extraordinary access. Yeah. Jenny Livingston, like she, she really earned the trust of everybody in this movie. It seemed, yeah. And like some of these interviews, like conducted in the bedrooms of some of these drag performers, are so intimate. Yes, it's unfreaking believable how revealing they actually get, how how much they trust the camera and 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 the people behind it. And it's it for for people who like documentaries. I mean, this is a total must see. Yeah, especially and I mean. It's also important to see because of the subject matter, yes, and and it's it's covering a lot of things that are now becoming more popular on social media and and in communities around the the country, probably the world. Um, but personally, what one thing I really took away from it is that it reminded me of a glorious era in documentary filmmaking where. You didn't have to have everything layered with tons of Adobe After Effects. You, it was <laughs> basically just observing people, observing pockets of subculture that you didn't know about, and and observing it not as an intruder or an outsider, but as somebody who was part of the fold and somebody who was trusted and someone whose presence was never questioned. And it's like social practice, and it's it's a fascinating little pocket of humanity, and it. It also made me miss New York in the 80s because I remember <laughs> visiting back then and feeling like it's it was a different place than it is now. Sure. Um, but, Andrew, maybe you can even speak more to that because you've been living in the New York vicinity for a decade now. I have indeed. Um, I don't know if I can speak to it because I've only been living in it in the sort of post-Giuliani, post-Bloomberg, disney version that all of the old-timey New Yorkers – decry as uh, a kind of sanitized version of New York. Although what's that saying about New York is that the only thing that's constant about New York is New Yorkers saying that New York has changed. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I mean, that's what, you know, I mean, you have to keep in mind that, that people who are born and raised in New York tend to have a very different perspective from the rest of the world. Uh, For them, the, the borders of the entire universe end at the, borders of the five boroughs so um <laughs> yeah <laughs> it may as well not be anything else that exists um but yeah yeah F- uh phil real quick to your point um what do you think changed in documentary filmmaking was it any particular filmmaker in particular was it errol morris or michael moore or somebody like that who kind of shifted it or was it just a general sea change in in documentary filmmaking do you think well, if you look at the most popular documentaries, the ones that have crossed over, uh, many of them, like this one, were, were big hits at the Sundance Film Festival. Sure. And uh, Michael Moore is one of those people. I mean, he's probably the most successful doc filmmaker of recent times. But um, I think what I think what changed is maybe not attributable to one filmmaker, but to a general kind of sea change with the kind of totally saturated presence of cameras everywhere oh yeah and ca- cameras in phones cameras that are handheld cameras that are tiny um i feel like more and more people 
their hackles raise when they see you pull out a camera, whether it's your phone. And, and, and anybody can make a documentary with their phone and upload it somewhere and get it seen. So I think, I think uh, it's harder to really get intimate with a subject. And I think a lot of people aren't even willing to spend the time to get as intimate with sure. people as in, as in this film in particular. Well, what's but, interesting... Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 please. What's imperative to note is that Jenny Levinson spent six years getting this film made, including oh, wow. just going to balls and getting to know the culture and becoming, like you said, in into the fold so that she wasn't othering her subject matter. She really was just having candid conversations and allowing for the narrative to... Uh, present itself and what was interesting was when she was trying to get funding she would go to these gay uh coalitions and say or you know foundations and say like hi i'm trying to do this documentary on their culture like oh we don't want to be we're trying to be we're trying to be respected as people we don't want to just be these drag queens and and um sex workers Mm -hmm. and then she would go to you know people of color uh, groups and art foundations and say, look, I'm doing this thing. And they're like, oh, no, we don't want to be associated with the gay community. And so she was right in the middle of both of those communities trying to act as a bridge to bring um, these issues that are not just about these people going yeah. to these parties on weekends. And that's, I mean, that's what the one-line synopsis is, but that's not what the movie's about, is that, that this is their escape from this other life of living as... Um, social pariahs essentially especially and doing this in the midst of the AIDS crisis she talks about uh, afterwards in interviews she said you know in the last two years of filming uh, violence uh, uh, sorry hate crimes toward the LGBT community increased 200% in one year alone because of the AIDS crisis and fear of uh, contamination Mm. so she I mean she's really an unsung female not even female filmmaker, just an unsung documentarian um, when it comes to the amount of work and effort she put into this project. I think it's very cool, too, that the uh, <coughs> the, the National Film Registry has, has acquired this movie, which, I mean, that's like such an honor. Yeah, and especially, yeah. especially for a film that is as recent as this one, too. This movie is only like barely a little bit over 25 old. years old. Yeah. And for it to be included in this very prestigious collection to represent our nation uh, as a document, I think that's like that's really incredible. And I mean, how can if you have like even the slightest sense of empathy, I don't know how you can watch this movie and not just like fall in love with everybody in it. Because every everybody (laughs) every single person. They're so excited and have so much heart and they they're really expressing themselves and they're living in a tough place and they have all these tough stories about being harassed for their identity and to see them just kind of like strut in the in the drag hall and you know and and come alive and um i mean everybody is everybody's working themselves to the bone everybody's got a tough job that they spend all their time uh you know cooped up in some place and then on the weekends or whenever they have free time that's when they can really kind of cut loose and watching these people cut loose is just a joy. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I mean, this movie is, I'm so happy that it's on Netflix, especially when so many other great documents are just getting lost in the ether. Yeah, no question. Um, I, I mean, you know, I've, I've talked about it with you before, Phil. I know this kind of uh, <clears throat> advent of the streaming world is kind of terrifying in a lot of ways because it means that a lot of films are just being swept by the wayside you know they're they're kind of disappearing because nobody's buying up the rights to show them and you can't if you can't find it on netflix or hulu or amazon then you know you may as well not be able to find it at all yeah Um, that is the one thing i miss about the the previous format of netflix where everybody just had to get dvds because then it made you like really delve into like oh yeah i've always meant to watch that and then you could just have it sent to your house in two days and now that they're going straight to streaming and everything's going straight to streaming you have a much more limited library yeah it's disappointing and and it's it's the it's the the constant shifting of it is very frustrating too the fact that you can put something on your queue and then it's gone a month later uh because they lost the rights to whatever that thing was that you wanted to watch um it's just mm-hmm. it's just a frustrating uh 
way to watch um, altogether. Um, mm-hmm. But that being said, they do have this film, and uh, I commend them for that. And I'm very and to be happy fair, this film has been on there for five years, and it disappeared for about a year, and people lost their <laughs> shit about it. In fact, I um, <coughs> I think they just reintroduced it when 2018 rolled around because it was gone oh, wow. for a while, and people were not happy. Yeah. There are a lot of people like me who like to do a once every quarter viewing of sure, this, sure. And, or just turn it on as background music. Yeah, well, it's a brisk film. I mean, it's only uh, an hour and twelve minutes long, I think, or something like that. Um, mm. It's it's it goes by in a flash, um, partially because it is so much to spend time, so much fun to spend time with these uh, personalities, um, but also because it's just a, an incredibly well made, well edited documentary that flows just like like a river. I mean, it's just great. Um, yeah, it actually it it kind of gets pretty high energy early on and then just sustains that the whole time. Yeah. Like it just, it doesn't let up. I um, think that her her use of taking interview segments and uh as voiceovers uh dispersed. That's the word I'm looking for, right? Interspersed throughout yeah, the yeah. film is absolutely brilliant, including the overture, the first line. The first line of the movie hits you when he talks about three strikes against you, you're black, you're gay. Yeah. What was the third one? Oh my god! You're a, you're a man. And, oh, that's right. It's your yeah. man. You're black. You're gay. And like that—that that can't be right. I don't remember. I'm sorry. It's not oh. that order, Liz. But it's—it is those three things. Okay. I think that's it's your your black. You're a man. And you're gay. I think that's the order. But, but I mean, I was Liz. Our guest today I, has seen this as she says a million times at <laughs> least, and we've been talking about the filmmaking. Let's talk a little bit more about the content. And Liz, yeah. please tell us more about what it is about voguing. What is it about being in a drag show that is most attractive or, or kind so of fascinating? Actually, what's really important to differentiate is that this is not a drag show in the way that most people think of drag queens and drag shows. When you yeah. think of a traditional drag show, it's one person putting on an act and going on stage and impersonating a female. Uh, if you go to a drag show in any town or any major city in America, that's what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. This is the form of drag that explores gender performance that we all do. When you and I were both born, we were just naked people. And then everything else is part of the gender construct that we're expected to do. Whereas, you as, know, as RuPaul I, says, you're born naked. We're all born naked. And the, the rest, rest is, is drag. <laughs> I am so happy that you know. that <laughs> I watch drag race. <laughs> Oh, all right. Never mind. We're on the. See, I didn't know exactly how much you guys knew. All right, we're fine. Dude, we're y- great. y'all are freaks. I'm serious. <laughs> Phil, I'm just kidding. Well, get just... in with the majority, sir. Yeah, man. So it's, it's 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 the most fun thing on television. It really is. And what I all right, not to jump tracks, but I don't like reality shows. But what this is, what I love about Drag Race is that it's so much more than, it's not, you know, just about bullshit drama. It's really about these talents and these people with these incredible backstories, a lot like Paris is Burning, where they're coming from broken homes. And this is their means of survival and pulling themselves out of this really oppressed, repressed place and like putting (coughs) juice to something that's, that's positive and empowering and contagious in that empowerment. And what... Uh, ball culture celebrates is not just the ability it it creates straight heteronormative white middle to upper class people as the other and so what uh, is heavily discussed is if you can come and dress as the thing you fantasize as passing as or if Mm -hmm. you could walk through in daylight around other people and passes the thing that you're not, whether that's um, executive realness or being in the military or even just being a banjo girl on the street corner. If you can pull off to straight normal people that you're that thing, that's how you win. And it's not necessarily being the most glamorous or the most whatever. I mean, one guy was dressed up as a thug who would rob you on your way to the show. Who Like the MC said, like, this is the guy that's going to rob you on the way to the show tonight. Like, yeah, it's just trying to pass in the straight world. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and I think that that uh, that segment that was titled "Realness," right? There's a whole section of the film where it just says "Realness," 
and then they sort of explain what they mean by realness and Liz you've just pretty much explained it um like that whole segment to me was fascinating because it 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 was uh revelatory in a way to to sort of see that this was it wasn't just people dressing up it was like a true expression of inner desire and inner self and and like um well and what dorian Corey says is she explains it very eloquently is sometimes dressing up is the closest most of us will ever get you can't most of these people don't come from a socioeconomic background or the demographic that will allow them the privilege to go to Harvard so they can be the lawyer, but they can show up for one night and they can dress and they can pass as that lawyer. And that's where the fantasy is, which when you look at it in that light is it's, it's really heartbreaking. It's like, Oh my God, the best these people can do is, or can even hope for is just dressing up in a room and having everybody respect them for a costume. But and it's it, so quick. I mean, people walk, it's over in seconds. Right. Yeah. Right, and they'll spend weeks on putting together an entire look. Every I don't know if you remember, there's an executive realness um, where these men are in business suits, but they also have attachés, and they, inside of the attachés, have the pens. They have the correct type of paper. Right, Some right. of them would have uh, business cards printed up just for the event, just to walk for five minutes in front of an audience. And it's unbelievable the amount of detail and the energy that was put into just holding on to that hope as a means of role playing. Yeah. There was, there was a, one of my favorite moments in the film was when they were talking about, uh, it was very brief and they, they said there was like school, school kid realness or schoolboy realness yeah, or something. And, and this, uh, this guy comes out and he's just dressed in, you know, casual school clothes, whatever walks, does a turn, sits, cross-legged on the ground and then just starts flipping through a book flipping pages. <laughs> and that was the that's his that's the whole bit that's the whole that's the walk and if you heard the audience was going nuts they were going he was nuts. selling it yeah and so that's what's so interesting is like when you think of drag what you think of and you know the etymology of the word drag right everybody here oh please inform us oh it is from shakespearean times <laughs> where they didn't have female actresses mm-hmm. so the word drag would denote dress regarding a girl. Wow. Yeah, so drag, (laughs) traditionally speaking, has just meant to change genders. However, in this instance, it's the performative gender or the performative, even the performative demographic, which I think is somehow, I mean, like, I love drag queens, but I think this is so much more faceted and uh, exploratory to our entire civilization and the roles we assume without even thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree like with the that. The things we take totally for granted, like, oh, yeah, of course I dress as schoolboy realness today. Like, But you don't think about it. It's just something you're already coded to doing. Yeah, and I think, I think the wind is blowing in a different direction, you know? And I think, I think things are changing. And, and, like, just to kind of offer my own ex- take on things, like, just earlier today, I was looking for, for glasses. And all the glasses that I kept looking at and and wanting to to try on like i found that they 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 were all labeled as women's glasses you know because like they're not necessarily all sectioned off by gender i was just kind of gravitating towards the ones that looked cool or like or, or the ones that kind of expressed the look i was trying to go for sure. but then part of me was thinking well you know geez i don't want should i wear women's glasses i mean like what if what is that gonna? What's gonna happen? Like, I mean, is somebody gonna make fun of me? And they're gonna say, "Hey, those glasses are for women." Ha ha ha. You know, but like, well, yeah, there's, there's a certain up, kind of. If there's a fluidity that's it. happening for, oh, uh, for, for yeah, sure. I mean, me and Liz both hail from North Carolina. I mean, I'm in. A, I escaped to a more progressive place, but and yeah, more but, expensive. No, don't get me started. <laughs> both of us. Oh my god. Yeah, but yeah, the coasts are expensive places to live, people. That's what that's what you should take away from this yeah, episode. Yeah. But but yeah, like yes, coming from a background where there is repression and and there is not a forward-thinking attitude in general, yeah, I mean, it takes a toll on people, I think, having to kind of repress those those things. And perhaps there's a part of America, a large part of America that will not be changed for a long time. Um, looking at you fly over territory. 
<laughs> but the coasts, the coasts are are hip, man. The coasts are kind of more progressive, of course. Well, and say what you will about the South. I have a ten-year-old, and she recently went shopping uh, around the holidays with her favorite aunt. And when she came home, she pulled out all this stuff, and I was like, "Oh my god, I love these sweaters." She's like, "Thanks, I got them in the boys section." <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it was such like a non-issue. Like kids don't make a big deal about it. Whereas I'm sure. I mean, I do the same thing. Like when I. I shaved my head a few years ago and it was like, Oh my God, this most re- rebellious thing ever. But then for younger kids, it's like, yeah, everybody does it. What's the big deal? Yeah. And this yeah. is a movie. Paris is burning is a movie that I think younger kids, even your daughter, Liz would probably be riveted. It's so fast paced. I mean, even if you have grown up in this type of era where everybody's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter, I think this movie is still absolutely like riveting from oh, start yeah. to finish. I agree. Yeah, no and it question. does it does sort of have like a, a settling story arc <clears throat> as well. Like you know, by the end of it, I don't know. It feels like a very complete message. Not even message, just a vignette. Yeah. And, and sample of this, the entirety of this world, um, that still goes on. So uh, they. I don't know if you know this, the ball culture actually originated in the 50s. And there's a really wonderful documentary called Sons of Tennessee Williams um, by Tim Wolfe that's about the ball culture that originated in uh, New Orleans as the gay answer to the straight ball culture that's been happening oh. forever in New Orleans around um, Mardi Gras. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And these dresses are holy shit insane. This one <laughs> queen comes out on a stage because they have the unveiling of the king and the queen, but it, of course both are men. Um, and on this one, they open up the curtain, and this man is wearing a castle as the back of his dress that is the size of the stage that is yes. two stories. Yes. It is crazy. <laughs> so, but it talks about the history. And, <clears throat> That's actually where ball culture started coming up the coast to New York City. They started having them there as well. Um, and there's another documentary called The Queen in 1968 that shows Crystal LaBeja. Crystal LaBeja was uh, the House, House of, of LaBeja founder. Yeah. And in that movie, she's in a pageant, which drag pageants are a whole extra genre of drag uh, performance and competition. And she is rejected because she knew it was riggery um <laughs> she knew it was bullshit because she because of the color of her skin and she walks off stage and after that moment she started developing ball culture in new york city as we see in this film um ball culture is still thriving it's uh, much more widespread than just metropolis areas and they're still held in community centers and you know church fellowship halls and it's a lot more um Death drops. It's not so much the costumery and realness anymore. It's more of the voguing. Like it's really vogue heavy, and I sure. think yeah. that's because of a cost prohibitive and time prohibitive um, dynamic. People don't want to carry that much stuff around, and they don't want to spend the time on it, and they can't afford to spend the time on it, so they just do the dancing part of it. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. That that seems. That's my entire history lesson. There. <laughs> that's great. Um, I, I think it's good to have context for this sort of thing. And speaking of context, I you know I, I recently fell down an internet rabbit hole um, where I was watching a lot of YouTube videos about Michael Alec and the and the uh, the club kids, the club kids, yeah, yeah, from the early nineties. Did you discover Lee Bowery? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great documentary of him on YouTube as well. He's amazing. But oh, that's London. Nice. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. <laughs> Um, but it was, you know, there was something in the air because that was in the early nineties as well. That was like 91, 92, 93. Um, and, um, and I watched this episode of the Geraldo Rivera show. Uh, that was, yeah, absolutely astonishing episode, but it was, it was astonishing, not just because of, of course, the way that Geraldo and his audience treated them, which was of, of course not well. Um, but also just how incredibly free and open and, and, uh, like wonderfully sort of themselves everybody was <laughs> in these club kids, even mm-hmm. if some of them were being pretentious or aloof, like Michael Alley himself, um, of course. Uh, but RuPaul, of course, was in, on that panel um, mm-hmm. uh, back before uh, she became famous. And it, you know, it, 
it, it, this was a time, this was a time when there was this, uh, it was really breaking through, you know, I mean, it's almost at a point now where drag race is, is sort of a, uh, a part of our background, the background in the culture, right? It's just a, it's just a thing oh, that a lot sure. of people take for granted. Um, but this was a time when these people were really uh, making a statement. They were, you know, people of all different varieties and persuasions and uh, ways of thinking about the world that were sort of counterculture that were, you know, it was, it, it was almost like uh, it made me feel like it was a kind of in the spirit of the sixties kind of thing that, that I missed when I was growing, you know, of course I was only 10, 11, 12 at that time. So I wouldn't have expected me to be, you know, too terribly aware of what was going on in, in the culture. But, mm -hmm. um, it's one of those things when, when you go, when you look back on it, you say, wow, there really was, uh, there was something happening, uh, mm -hmm. that, that it's hard to quantify uh, that it was is really exciting, especially in retrospect. It, retrospect, it's it's to look back and just see um, how the, as you say, Phil, the the winds were kind of changing, you know. Sure, sure, yeah, and I, it's interesting to think about change and how and and change in New York City, especially. And uh, if I recall, there's a, there's a part late in the film where some of the older um, queens are talking about how it used to be that these these drag nights and these kind of these showcases were happening in the streets and they used to be yeah, happening in yeah. the city but then, now they've kind of been confined to these balls these indoor gymnasiums and whatnot <coughs> and and it just kind of for me that just kind of seems to play along the same narrative about what's ha what's been happening in New York City and what's been happening in big cities around the world is this whole thing about where, you know, I call it the erosion of authenticity, where mm. generations, generations after each other are, they're losing part of their heritage, they're losing part of their culture, they're losing part of the, the vibrancy, and it's getting replaced by a more sanitized version. And the generations that, like, that pick it up, for, for them, they may not notice any difference, or they may not see anything to lament like I am. But they're just it's interesting to kind of look back and sort of see how and to think like, wow, you know, like, sure, it's it's fun to kind of watch these these people inside of this room just kind of walk back and forth and work it and everything. But like to see it like on the street, you know, like to see it out in Harlem or wherever and just kind of actually out there where there weren't as many barriers between people uh that you know that would have been a pretty awesome sight i think too sure sure but i think also you know especially at the time probably a very dangerous thing to be doing um, yeah that's what i was thinking yeah. like that that's in itself an act of rebellion when you could you know be thrown in prison for the suspicion of sodomy and yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean in in that way we've come a long way as well although not nearly far enough um, but, uh, it's, it's the kind of thing where like in New York now you can see that kind of thing happen. I mean, I, I remember walking through, uh, Central Park one time and there was just a drag show happening in, in, in this big open area, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and it was great. It was wonderful. You need to stop and watch for a few minutes. You keep going. It's like open to, to everybody. Well, and if you've followed Drag Race at all, I mean, it's this next season will be its 10th season. And I remember watching the first season in 08, and it was so much more homemade oh, yeah. and not as polished. And even that, as it's become more and more mainstream in the last decade, has become more Instagram ready. And it's more queens that don't have talent, but they look good, but they're paying other people to sure, do their hair and sure. do their costuming. And it's not this homemade self creation and self-expression it's oh i have enough money i can hire this designer to make me this and yeah. it's i mean it, there's been a lot of performance who said you know this is ruined drag which reminds me a lot of dorian corey in this documentary saying you know back in my days it was the beads and feathers and now it's girls just going out and mopping or 
buying a designer and wearing it to the floor. It's it's the same thing, and yeah. it's happening 25 or, I guess, 28 years later. Well, mm-hmm. and, and it's happening in so many artistic disciplines. I mean, it's the same thing with performance and with filmmaking and with music. You know, I mean, the people who are tending to be the most successful are the people who have access to money and time and the ability to buy the equipment and the stuff that's necessary to be successful. And it's not necessarily the most talented people who are quote unquote making it. It's the people who can get in front of people, you know, it's the people who can Same get eyes with our on them. politicians. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, what's happening? I don't know. <laughs> it's money. Money makes the world go round. As so, say hey, crazy fun fact. Uh, yeah. This is going to come way out of left field. Love it. Um, Love it. But it is an interesting uh, comment. So this is going to be a bit of a bombshell if you don't already know. After Dorian Corey died mm. in 1993, I think, they found the corpse of a man in a trunk in her apartment. What? It had been there for years. And the scuttlebutt surrounding that was that she had had a uh, sexual encounter that had gone badly and she had acted in self-defense. Something happened and she was afraid to turn herself in because of the legal repercussions of being a, you know, transgender or not even transgender, um, a drag performer in the who knows when it happened. They're saying (laughs) so while this movie is being filmed. There is a man Whoa. in a trunk somewhere in that room. Let me just say, like, as a documentary filmmaker, this happens all the time. What? The most what? interesting stuff always happens after you stop filming. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, this happens all the time. People, subjects always have dead bodies in suitcases every time. Well, what's funny is I was watching this movie four years ago, and I'm the kind of nerd that will get on IMDb and start looking at trivia while the movie's still running in front of me. Or, you know, I'll go on Wikipedia and be like, oh, what year did Dorian Corey, you know, kick it or whatever. And they included that on the Wikipedia page. And it's amazing it's not well more talked about because I think that's more of a signifier of the time than a lot of what goes on. Oh, sure. This... This gal couldn't call the cops because she was attacked, so she just literally lived with the problem festering yeah. in her apartment. Yeah, that is that's very it's a it's a potent yeah true true life a potent metaphor yeah it's a, for real life yeah it actually it's a real thing not just a metaphor but it just happens to be a metaphor. As but well. now whenever I look at her on screen, I'm just like there is a trunk with a man in it somewhere in that room. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that was out of left field and uh, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Well, we were talking about how dangerous it was to be this type of person. Sure. And I think this that kind of goes along with that. Also, it's a fact I just love to drop on people who sure. watch this movie. Sure. Like, I'm sorry. I just I, I blurted it out to my husband within 30 minutes of looking at Dorian Corey <laughs> when we were watching it. I was like, oh, by the way, she's got a dead guy somewhere in that room. And he's like, I'm sorry. What? Is that in the movie? I'm like, no, they didn't find out until she was dead. Sorry. That's... This is why we like having you on In the Queue, Liz. <laughs> yeah. Because you do pay attention to the trivia. Too yeah. much attention to trivia. I should have, like, real facts in my head, like child CPR, but instead I know about Dorian Corey and her problems. Sure. Well, I mean, the um, film itself has its own sort of melancholic and, and sad touches towards the end. I won't reveal what they are, because if you haven't watched this film and you're watching it for the first time, I don't want to have that in your brain as you're kind of <clears throat> moving through the film. But there are uh, some e- extremely sad moments um, towards the end of the film um, that also reflect the danger of the world that they were living in, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought it was so... Well, like, I thought that Dorian Corey's closing remarks as she's putting on the eyeliner, she says, you know, if you shoot an arrow and it goes up real high, hooray for you. And blackout. Blackout. I was like, oh my (laughs) god, yes! Yeah. It was actually, like, the most perfect ending soliloquy. It absolutely was. was, Because you just, like, this most heart-rending thing about, you know. But... Yeah, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. I, oh man! Again, oh sure. I, 
I find every aspect of it fascinating. I've gone online and looked at uh, videos of balls that are still happening, and I follow a few accounts on Instagram that show drag clips. I still follow the um, House of Ninja. Oh, nice. Um, and, I mean, these are these are still houses that are still up and functioning. I didn't realize that Patricia Fields started because she built a house. Patricia Fields being the famous designer who yeah. did uh, she rose to mainstream fame with Sex in the City, I think was her big moment. But she started because she put together a house. Wow, wow. Um, was this you know when this film started? Uh, I noticed that it said it was a. I don't remember what the name of the company was, but it was a subdivision of Miramax. Was this an early Miramax film? Was it yeah. an early hit for Miramax? Um, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you heard about the legal problems that happened. After the movie came out and made $3 million in the box office, uh, Paris Dupree flipped her shit and was like, well, I didn't, you know, you, I deserve some money. And a lot <laughs> of the queens came out and she sued for $40 million. Whoa. From the studio because, and then they came, the producers came back and said, "Well, you actually signed these releases, so we don't know you shit." Oh, and yeah. there were a lot of people saying, you know, like this girl Jenny Livingston became rich and famous off of us. I saw an interview with Dorian Corey, which is not true. She didn't become rich or famous off of yeah. us. She had one massive success and then kind of, I hate to say, faded into obscurity because she still has something in a massive public record. Well, I think, yeah, yeah, of course. But, I mean, if you look at the IMDb credits, I think there are only four directing credits to her name. Yeah, it um, wasn't mm-hmm. like she became the next Scorsese off of this yeah. this project. But, um, luckily, the, the producers kind of shut down the whole $40 million lawsuit, but ended up giving 55000 to 13 of the participants, like, split among them. Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. See, the math would be seven dollars and sixty-four cents. I think. I don't know math. I'm an English major, but well, that's yeah. I mean, that's really more than anyone could hope for. I mean, I think. I mean, obviously, everybody in this film wants to be famous, and they 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 clearly uh, make that known in the film. But documentaries are not really have never been that kind of a money maker. No, so think... no, and it seemed like a lot of like post-production clamoring on their part and um you know you you especially saw that in octavia where she's Mm. she wants to be a supermodel and she's sitting for photo shoots and she's she actually ended up continuing to have surgeries and it got kind of out of control i think she Mm. passed away i'm pretty sure but yeah yeah, octavia went to was the one who went to the ford modeling agency casting call right yeah and what an interesting moment for the documentarian to get that as part of it as well. Yeah. I mean, have Willamita Ford in the... Yeah. Which was, you know, that those kind of casting calls are exactly like that. You know, they're the kind of... They're cattle calls, right? You just get a bunch of people in yeah, the room and, and they, look at they them they and... probably saw a thousand girls and called one of them back. Yeah, exactly. If mm-hmm. any of them... If anything, it was just a self-promotional event. Yeah, pretty much. Which yeah. was heartbreaking because you could see Octavia's like real hope and real desire to have this, and yeah, you know she's working so hard to be a passable woman, and it's the biz, baby. It's, I do. You know. I have. I will say that after this movie, I've started saying that like I identify as a rich person. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm trans wealth at the yeah. moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was one of my favorite segments. She's like, I just don't feel like poverty suits me. I'm like, mm, I, yeah. <laughs> I can understand that. I completely relate to that. Or or middle class life. Right, no. Yeah, mm. not even, no. Like, no, rich, rich. Um, I also enjoyed the uh, the realness from the, oh, what was it? It was uh, the polo club or, or whatever it is oh yeah town and country town and country town and country realness yes i loved it it actually well, it actually reminded me of uh andre 3000 in in the hey ya video yes. I, like i immediately thought of that <laughs> well and their interpretations of what it means to be white in america was also really illuminating to hear the oh, yeah. guy that says you know if you're a man and a woman you could do whatever you want you could have sex in the streets if you wanted to almost and it's like <laughs> i don't know if that's maybe in your part of new york but not you know 
or you know, even um, Venus Extravaganza saying, you know, <coughs> rich white girls get whatever they want, and sure. that's the life. And you know, they don't see any of the trappings of these other classes. Yeah, not that other classes have it worse than being a, you know, transgender person of color in the mid eighties. <laughs> But yeah. still, like, mm-hmm. it's this complete uh, idealized version of the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was wondering, watching the film, I was wondering about the the director, Jenny Livingston. I, was, I, I didn't know who made the film, but I assumed it was somebody who just could blend in in some way. And it reminded me, based on what you, you kind of answered that question, Liz, when you talked about how it took her, like, six years to actually get this film made and, and get it shot. There's another really good, really gritty documentary about New York City called Dark Days that I saw oh, many about years the, ago. Uh, mole people, right? Uh, and it, 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 the the whole that movie has such great access to a community of people who live in abandoned subway tunnels in New York City. That's a great documentary. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, it's, it's and, really and great. I was thinking, I was like watching it, thinking like I always think about the access. How do they do it? Well, this guy who filmed it. One day, or one night, actually, he just saw somebody crawl into a hole yeah. in the street and disappear, and he went in after him, and he he discovered this whole, like, underground dwelling space, and he gradually made friends with all these people. And the, the filmmaker, I believe, is British, yeah. but he was so curious about how they lived, they eventually trusted him, and he made this amazing film and got incredible access to it, to this whole world. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I... I... I respect documentarians. I mean, I respect documentarians in general because making documentaries is hard. Uh, so I respect you, Phil. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but especially, especially these people who who go and live with their subjects for an extraordinary amount of time. I mean, I, I think about. <clears throat> I don't even think that this is uh, necessarily the same kind of a thing. But when you talk about access and you talk about how much people are opened up to to filmmakers. Uh, my favorite documentary of all time, as I've uh, announced on this podcast before, is The Act of Killing, um, mm. which is an astonishing documentary that gains access to its subjects by appealing to their egos, essentially. Um, sure. By allowing them, you know, this this sort of promise of artistic freedom to create the the story of their lives as they see it. It becomes this, like, incredible sort of you know wormhole into their uh, psyches and it, and, and yeah. for them it's terrifying and wonderful and revelatory and and uh i i just documentarians who can do that with their subjects either through spending time with them or through uh, appealing to you know one thing or another about their personality uh, it's really a, an astonishing feat uh, well and i think that it's in this case Probably especially, sometimes it absolutely matters who the documentarian is. Oh, yeah. Because I don't believe that a cisgendered, heteronormative white dude could do this movie Not at all. They could chance. have had the accent. They wouldn't have been able to have the conversations. I don't even know if a gay male would have been able to do this movie in the same way. Because um, I think, I don't know if they're being white necessarily mattered but definitely her being female and going in and observing this space um it it became most evident when pepper labeja said was talking about how um he had no desire to actually trans uh what's the word become female transition transition. Uh, he was transition transition. i'm sorry it's late here you guys you know you're in new york we get it yeah Um, i get it (laughs) um Yeah, like, no interest in transitioning. And he was like, you know, people transition to a female thinking that it's got to be better than being a gay man. But in most cases, it's not. Women are treated terribly. And I don't think he would have said that in such a conspiratorial tone if he was talking to a woman. I don't think he would have said it at all. Or, sorry, to a man. Sure. I don't think he would have said it at all if he was talking to a man. Well, you know, you you also have to take into consideration that there is a man holding the camera throughout this whole film. Uh, Jenny Livingston wasn't the DP. There was, and and that takes 
that takes a certain blending in as well, a certain kind of of course of being being receptive to all things. And that lets her that lets her be the conversation maker and where he's holding. I mean, you know, he's making mm-hmm. eye contact with her, and um, especially when he talks about his mother, Pepper Labeja talks about yeah. his mother's reaction and. Well, and they, yeah, I mean, they're in almost every interview in this. They're clearly making contact with her off screen, her the, the filmmaker, Jenny um, off screen. So it's clear that she's, you know, I mean, uh, a cameraman can pretty easily blend into the background uh, mm-hmm. if if a conversation is just happening. You know, yeah. uh, famously, Errol Morris, when making his documentary, he invented a device that allowed him to look directly into the face of the person he's interviewing, but used a, a system of mirrors called the Interatron <laughs> to that sounds it, horrifying. I know it sounds horrifying, doesn't it? <laughs> but yeah, it, it basically it, means that they the, the subject looks into the lens and they're actually making eye contact yeah. with Errol Morris's face in the lens. Um, right, but the, but I, when it's being photographed, it looks like they're addressing the lens directly. Right, right. and I I so that's like I would love to look into an Interatron before I die. I really want to know what that looks like. To somebody, what if you do the Interatron in the Integratron. <laughs> oh, that was terrible. Oh, so anyway, t- what I wanted to say about, <coughs> about camera people, yeah. I always loved watching movies uh, made around the time when I was a kid, like in the mid-80s and 90s, because I loved looking at the end credits and seeing the names of people who would go on to later do bigger and better things. Sure. And one of the assistant camera persons on this film was Maurice Alberti, who is uh, a woman, a French cinematographer who is one of the preeminent female cinematographers. And she shot The Wrestler for Darren Aronofsky. She shot Velvet Goldmine, many other films. And, but uh, amusingly, (laughs) her name is is credited twice for two separate things and it's misspelled both times. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes people change the, the way their name is spelled as they move through their career. There are a number of actors who early in their career have their names spelled one way and then it changes just ever so slightly, even just like adding an E or, you know, changing it. Going from I, The Rock know. to Dwayne. Yeah, that's right. Well, like, her name is her name is Maurice, but in the credits it's spelled Mayors. <laughs> yeah, that's that sounds more like a genuine typo. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is what it is. Well, Liz, thank you for bringing this film to us. Uh, it was an absolute abject pleasure um it was uh i'm so glad that i finally saw this because i it's as i said in the opening it's this has been on my list for an eternity and uh and it uh it it exceeded at my expectations um because i i you know a lot of times you'll hear about something that is an iconic film and you'll see it and it'll be like yeah that's iconic because of what it meant to people or because of the subject matter and yes that is part of this but it's on top of that, a genuinely great documentary. Like it's a genuinely. I think it's a great, great documentary, and it also is one of those ones that feels timeless in how it uh, appeals to people on a human level. Like oh, yeah. you walk away from it having your own experience instead of just observing it and trying to understand the context. Yeah. Like even without all the context and the historical notes, like you feel like you've been part of something by watching it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for I sure. agree. I thought it was it's it's just just the right kind of documentary for me. I love observational docs. Les Blank is one of my heroes, and he's made a ton of movies about pockets of subculture across the country. Yeah, and you know this material, I think this has got to be like one of the definitive documents of this subculture ever. Uh, so I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it too. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Liz, for coming on the show again. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. yeah. We love having you on the show. Um, hopefully you'll have something else for us uh, next time. It's always a good conversation um, and always really in-depth and really interesting. I'll work on it. Next up, Emoji Movie? Oh, okay. man. <laughs> <laughs> the the first movie shown publicly in Saudi Arabia in like 40 years. Did yeah, you know I know. That? It's so Oh, bizarre. that makes me so sad. They're going to ban them again. <laughs> They're like, you know what? This was a mistake. Let's go back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. We don't sure. need to be part of this. Um, God, what a what a terrible idea that movie was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't seen it, and I'm fine with that. 
Yeah, I don't think it, it's it has one of the worst uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores I think of all time. There was for a while it was like sitting at zero percent or something. Oh. Um, <laughs> I think it got up to like eight or nine percent. I I could be totally misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened. I'm so sorry I ruined a perfectly wonderful conversation about a fantastic movie with absolute trash. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> anyway, um, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, this was our podcast about Paris is Burning. And uh, we do hope you will join us for our next podcast when we will be talking about the new film Annihilation, which is the new film from Alex Garland, the maker of Ex Machina, one of my favorite movies of a couple... In fact, my favorite movie of, what, three years ago? Uh, Very exciting. Um, And we hope you'll join us for that. And uh, thanks for listening. See you then.